Welcome to the Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We have really turned that corner as we've moved through the book of Isaiah together so far. That first chunk of the book has been so much about God's judgment, but some of the most beautiful sections of Isaiah, and we've had some good ones, but some of the most beautiful are in this latter part of the book as we get the servant songs, uh, we get a very familiar text today, especially at the end of the chapter from Isaiah chapter 40. So we get to continue to enjoy this, this prophecy uh, that the Lord has shared with us. So we start chapter 40 today. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, and the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice cries, a voice says, cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span? enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in balance. Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom, then, will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. 
and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that you could do as you read through this chapter today is just stop and see how many times you can connect this text to Jesus. That's what the chapter itself is doing, and so we're going to do some of that ourselves together. This is a, It's good to remember this is God's immediate response to what just happened in 39. At the end of chapter 39, King Hezekiah showed his hand that he doesn't care about his people. He could care less. He just cares about himself. He's glad that he's got peace in his day. It doesn't matter to him that in, his, in the generation of his son, sons, uh, his kingdom is going to fall. He didn't care. Exile is just prophesied of God's people. And so God, who is faithful and just, God speaks words of comfort on behalf of his people. And that's what it starts. Comfort, comfort. As God is, again, responding to this really wretched response that Hezekiah had given, God is showing that he is not faithless like that. He is faithful. And so he will speak almost like a romantic picture. Uh, here in these first couple of verses, like a, a groom speaking to his bride and comforting her in sorrow. Warfare is ended. Iniquity is pardoned. We receive double for our sins from Yahweh. This all points us to Jesus. It is Jesus who brings an end to our warfare. He's the one who brings us peace. It is Jesus who pardons our sins. It is Jesus who gives us that doubling of the portion from God's hand. Really, the point of that double for all of our sins thing is the idea that God's grace is greater than our sin. Arguably way more than double. But the picture is there. You know, you take... You could do the little experiment here. You could take whatever you want, marshmallows or pennies or, or something, get a good number of them, make a small pile, and then make a new pile that's got twice as many. And you can talk about it together as a family, which is bigger. Which would you rather have? The small pile is our sin. The bigger pile is God's grace for you in Jesus Christ. It is bigger, and it cares for you. He cares for you. 
Now, verse 3, you can ask your children, who is this talking about? Because we know this from Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. This prophecy is about John the Baptist, that he's going to come in the wilderness. So he's a desert preacher. He's going to prepare the way of Yahweh. And the rest of this, uh, verses 3 and 4 then, is describing what that's going to look like. And essentially what, what this is saying is he's going to make level ground. It's about visibility, easy terrain. He's going to remove the obstacles. John is going to make it. His task is to prepare the hearts and the minds of the people and their ears so that they would see and hear Jesus. So he's not going to literally spend his days with a shovel trying to level land. He's leveling out the human heart. He's calling people to repent. He's calling them to stop focusing on themselves for just long enough that they might hear the words of their Messiah who then can forever get them to stop focusing on themselves. So John is a repentance preacher, and we know that full well from his very the glimpses that we get of him in the gospel accounts. Verse 5, the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. Again, ask your children, well, what's that? What is the glory of Yahweh? It's his son. It's Jesus. All flesh shall see it together. So all flesh will see the glory. All flesh will see Jesus together. Now, in the short term, which isn't really all that short, this is 700 years into the future, but all nations will hear the gospel. It refers to that. But it also then refers to the last day when Jesus comes back and literally all people will see him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Philippians chapter 2 on that one. The next section, verse 6, God cry, calls out to Isaiah. Isaiah responds, gets the words that he is given to speak. This picture of grass and flowers that fade. Jesus turns that into a picture of caring for us, interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 6. But God's picture here in this point is that we are like grass. We fade. But his word stands forever. If he makes a promise, you can trust it. He is faithful. He will keep it. And so just now he promised forgiveness. He promised a greater thing than our sin. We can trust that. We can keep that promise close to heart. We can cling to that. The next section on the greatness of God here, verse 9 and 10, really Jerusalem uh, as the capital of God's people is also going to be the place where the crucifixion takes place. This is where Jesus goes. So the idea of going up on a high mountain is that you can be seen and heard. Like the old days of preaching before microphones, pastors had elevated pulpits. They were lifted up so that they were standing above the people. It wasn't some prideful thing that I'm above you. I get to look down on you. It was so that the voice carried and that the people in the back of the church could hear. So it is with calling out from a rooftop in the, in the scriptures or calling out here from on top of a mountain. People can hear the good news being proclaimed. And what is that good news? Well, lifted up. God is lifted up. That's the cross of Christ, the forgiveness of sins that comes in our Lord and Savior. And so then verse 10, God comes with might, but it's not the might man expected. It's the might of forgiveness. That is the reward that is with him. Verse 11, that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Jesus calling himself a good shepherd, John chapter 10. 
He cares for us. He gathers us. He carries us. All those kinds of pictures. Good to see. Verses 12 through 14. Lots of questions to get Israel to consider that they are not able to do these things. None of us can be this. None of us are God. None of us can save ourselves. Only God can do these things. And this is the same thing that we get in Job's book, uh, about four chapters of this, from chapter 38 to 41. And then Paul cites from this section here in Isaiah, uh, in his writings of Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 34. So, verse 15 and through 17, really, the world is humble before the might of God. I mean, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. So, take a drop of water from your sink and splash it on your face. That's the most that the world's power can do against God. It's nothing. Nothing at all. Um, they, and that's verse 17. The nations are nothing before him. He is God. Incredibly, this is a picture we get of the final battle, that Armageddon that so many Christians are afraid of. In Revelation chapter 19, you have the building up of this giant battle as the devil musters up his forces and, and marches against God. And you would think that you get the, you'd get this fantastic scene of battle in Revelation because of how much time Revelation spends building up to the battle. But there is no account of the battle at all. It's done. As soon as the battle is set to begin, it is over and God has won and the devil is done. Because the devil is nothing before the Lord. The powers of this world are nothing before the Lord. He is God. And there is no other. That is spoken again, looking back at verse 1, as comfort and being spoken to tenderly. God is saying these things to prove himself capable of caring and providing for us. That we need not fear, that we need not worry in our lives. This is truly, this is incredible uh, for us to consider. Verse 22 continues that, uh, well, really the next couple of sections continue that. So you can't compare God to an idol. They are nothing. Uh, God is the one who stretched out the heavens. He is the one who can bring princes to nothing. Verse 24, I mean, he blows on them and they wither. This is a, t a conversation of his judgment as he is. We've seen it in chapters 13 through 23 of this book. We talk about his judgment of Israel, Assyria, Judah, Babylon, etc. You name any war kingdom in this world, and eventually it falls. God brings judgment upon it, and it falls. The USA, where I live now, God's judgment will come upon it, and it will fall. I don't know when, but unless Christ first returns, I know it will happen. Because that's what happens to sinners who trust in themselves instead of in the Lord. And it's been every nation under heaven, even God's own specifically chosen, separated out, holy nations of Israel and Judah, they still fell into the trap of their sin. So we lift up our eyes, not to ourselves. We lift up our eyes. We look to God. 
And we saw this phrase, not one is missing back in chapter 34, verse 16. There it was a negative. It was a reference to how God was going to fill the devastated land after he wiped out the people, um, his enemies. He would fill the land with animals. Not one animal would be missing. But here, here it's a reference again to his creation, that because of his strength, all of his people gathered together. Not one is missing. Verse 27 expresses the people's doubts. It shows their lack of faith. Does God not see us? Does God not care about us? And so God then speaks what are, ends up being some very famous words. Uh, you've probably heard these words quoted before. Um, I think they're in Remember the Titans, which is a movie that we watched almost. It, it felt like probably at least a dozen times in my high school years. Um, in the classroom. Never understood that one. It was like the movie of choice by substitute teachers. Anyway, verse 28 through 31. God speaks to our doubt by ensuring us that he is everlasting. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. He is God, the one who, again, destroys nations and that nations are nothing before him. And he gives power to us. We don't want to read that as being some miraculous power that we have the ability to heal or things like that. This is this is God giving us the power to live. This is God giving us the power over sin, death, and the devil. This is God giving us life. I mean, we grow weary, right? Which of us here hasn't, hasn't fallen faint, hasn't been exhausted? But God is our strength. That's the point of this passage. The Christian life is about moving forward. It's about serving our neighbor. It's about trusting in the Lord and in his provisions for us rather than in what we can do for ourselves. That's the, that's the real thrust of this, again, famous passage. And you can talk about what it means together as a family. Um, God provides. God strengthens. God gives us the ability to endure the suffering and tribulation that we face in this world so that holding fast to him, clinging to him all over the days of our lives, we get to see our Savior face to face in paradise where we will no longer grow weary or faint.